Have you ever been through something that made you more appreciative of what you have? Like when you're going through the moment, you're like, oh, I really have it good. And this is not a serious example, but last night we were hanging out with friends and uh, we were over at their house. And as I guess all good parties do, at some point you run out of ice. Um, And so we needed more ice and he was blocked in because people had parked behind him. And so I was like, I can drive you. That's no problem. And so um, just for reference, at our house, essentially at the end of our street, there's a gas station. Um, And then less than half a mile away, there's an HEB. And so I'm thinking, oh, we're going to get ice. This will be like two minutes. Um, And so we get in the car and we start driving. And I'm like, oh, we're like a mile down the road. And then he says, turn left. And I'm just like, okay. So we keep going, and it's another mile, mile and a half before I even can see the gas station. And so it's like this, for me, it just felt like a really long way to go to get ice because I'm used to, like, I could walk to our gas station faster than we drove to this one. And on the way back, I was just like, I'm really appreciative of what I have. Like, I have a gas station right here two minutes away, so if we forget something, like, you can be in the middle of cooking and go get it and be back before you have to turn anything off. Like, it's a, it's a brilliant thing for us. And so that little thing made me appreciative of what I had. And there may, may be bigger ones for you. Maybe it was, a, it was an accident or a health scare or a near miss or seeing somebody else's situation. Um, but understanding where you could be brings gratitude and thanks for where you are. And today, we're going to be talking about sin and its consequences And I'm warning you up front, it's a bleak picture. Um, It's not pretty. And so the goal here this morning is not to make us all feel bad, um, but to understand the reality of where we are or where we have been so that we can have a deeper appreciation for our faith and our salvation. Because I think for us, we can sometimes be tempted to downplay or skip sections like we're going to read this morning. And actually, we were going to do verses 1 through 10 Um, this morning all together, so bad news and good news all together. But as I read and prepared, I thought it's, it's actually really important for us to understand what it means to be dead because of our sins, because I think that's actually crucial to understanding Scripture. We need to understand the seriousness of our sin, because the more we understand the depths of our sin and its consequences, the more gratitude we have, the more appreciative we are of what Jesus has come to do for us. The bigger the cross becomes, the more we understand our sin. And so his real mission into the world becomes clearer. And I also know this is not going to be my most popular sermon. Um, Talking about sin and its consequences is not going to sell. I get it. But it's in Scripture, and so as we do, we go straight through books of the Bible, and so it is here for us I think it will be beneficial for us. And so we're going to read Ephesians 2, just verses 1 through 3. Um, And so if you want to turn there, it's page 1036 in the Pew Bible in front of you, um, or you can find it in your Bible. You can also follow along in our Brentwood Bible app. It's there for you. But we're just going to read the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedience, we too all previously lived among them in our own, in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. 
So not the cheeriest of passages that we're covering this morning, but it is no less true than anything else that we cover. And so if you've noticed in your bulletin, basically it's just a series of questions that we're going to go through this morning to kind of understand what this means for us and how it impacts us and what we do as a result of this. So first, we're just going to start with the basics. What does it mean that you were or are dead? And just up front, um, everyone at some point in your life was in this category. You were dead in your sins and transgressions, which we'll cover in a minute. Now, some of you may be believers in Christ now, which is good news. We'll get to that in, in a minute. Um, but just understand, everybody at some point was here. And if you're not yet a believer in Christ, uh, we would say you still are here. This is what, you, what your life looks like. And so that's why this is important for us. So if you are a believer, just remember, this is where you were before Christ. So what does it mean that you were or you are dead? So this is a very simple and very complicated thing to understand. Um, simply, it means we're dead, as in not alive, um, as a result of our sin, which we'll get to in a second. But it's complicated because for us, we don't feel dead. We don't think we're dead. We think we're alive. We think we're walking around. We think we're doing great things. And sometimes when we think about our spiritual state before Christ or without Christ, we don't see it as serious as it really is, right? We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We say things like, well, I'm not really that bad. And of course, I got saved because look at all the good things I did. Or my parents went to church or we did this or we did that. And so, of course, I got saved. It wasn't really all that bad. I did all of these good things. And so we see sometimes our status as sinners as somebody who, some people who are sick or who have a disease. So we think, if I just get some medicine or if I get some treatment, then I'll be okay. But this tells us actually something different. We're not sick. We don't have a disease. We're dead. Like dead. Not barely dead, like not on the table just waiting for somebody to intervene, you know, CPR, and then shock us with the paddles and we'll come back to life. That's not what this dead is. This is, you're dead, you're in the grave, and you've been in the grave for a while, right? You're dead, no doubt, no denying it, nothing else. And there was an interesting um, concept that somebody I, I read this week said is, what he said was, basically, if you're comparing yourself to another sinner all you're saying is they've decayed more than I have, right? Not I'm better than them, I'm more alive than them. I haven't decayed as much as them. That's what it means to be dead in your sins. You are dead and gone. But this concept, as I mentioned, is hard for us to grasp because we don't feel dead. We have moments where we experience, we may have moments where we experience the brokenness of the world with pain or suffering or a tough situation where we kind of feel that a little bit more, that something is wrong, something is not right. But for the most part, we feel alive because the world tells us we're basically good, right? If you believe in yourself, if you try hard enough, you can do anything. And we see people, believers and non-believers, do great things, amazing works of art, amazing athletes, scientific discoveries, being physically fit and other great accomplishments, and it makes us think that we are just fine. But in reality, we aren't. We are dead inside. 
I think this is tied to a concept where even if we do something amazing or we see something amazing or we have this great accomplishment, it doesn't last, right? It's fleeting. Maybe a day or two or three, if it's something great, you feel really good about it, but then you're just like, oh, I guess that's it, right? Because it can't satisfy. It can't fulfill. It fades almost immediately. It gives us a glimpse of what being alive might look like, but we can't quite get there because we're dead. And so we have to hold two things together. One is we may be physically alive, but we are spiritually dead, right? We are all physically alive this morning, but in our sins, we were were spiritually dead. And the second half of that is our spiritual death actually results in our physical death, right? If there was no sin and everything was perfect, as it will be in eternity, there will be no physical death. Death. And so those two things are tied together. So we are dead, not sick, not diseased, dead. So then the question is, well, why are you dead? And we get the answer right at the beginning. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So we see these two things that bring about our spiritual death. Right? This is like an autopsy. This is what killed us, these two things, trespasses and sins. That's what contributed to us dying. And these two things combined give us a fuller picture of what it looks like. And so first we see trespass. Right? A trespass, as someone defined it, is it's a false step involving either the crossing of a known boundary or a deviation from the right path. Now when I hear trespasses, it makes me think of somebody who like lives out in the woods and they have all these no trespassing signs up on the fence and on the trees and... I don't know, doomsday prepper kind of person where it's like, don't come anywhere near anything. And you know, because they have so many signs plastered up, that if you cross that line, there will be consequences, right? They're probably already watching you, guns ready, and as soon as you step across, they're going to let you know you have crossed the line, right? That's what trespass means. You know you're not supposed to cross that line, but you cross it anyway, So a trespass is basically saying, I did what I wasn't supposed to do. We have crossed the line from obedience to God to disobedience. I'm going to describe these as sins of commission, things that you actually did. We knew we weren't supposed to, but we did it anyway. And so you may say, well, if I just do nothing, then I can't do anything wrong then there's no danger for me because I haven't made any trespasses. Well, this is where the other side kicks in. The other side is our sins. A sin means a missing of the mark or a falling short of a standard. Whenever I think of this definition of sin, it makes me think of um, someone shooting arrows, right? That there's a target way out there and they're shooting arrows towards it. And the arrow falls short every time. It doesn't quite make it to the target and never quite gets there. Something has gone wrong. It's not there. And so basically, for this one, this is saying, essentially, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. There was something I was supposed to do. There was something I knew I was supposed to do, but I didn't do it. These are sins of omission, right? I knew what I was supposed to do, and I didn't do it. 
So we either do something we know we're not supposed to, or we don't do something we know we are supposed to do. And those two come together to kind of cover all of our bases, that we are all trapped in our sins and our trespasses. But how did we get here? How did we get to these sins and trespasses? And we see a verse down at the end that says, we were by nature children under wrath. We were by nature. Right? This is our natural state to be dead in our trespasses and our sins. You don't need to do anything out of the ordinary to end up dead in your trespasses and sins. Right? Your natural state is just kind of how you are by nature. Whatever you would normally do without any interference from anybody else, that's your natural state. And for us, our natural state is sinners and trespassers. That's who we are by nature. And that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, um, Genesis 2. It was really great for one chapter, right? But when we get to the second chapter, it's not so great. And so we choose all the time to do things we shouldn't or not do the things we should, which leads us to our next question. If we are naturally like this, what does that look like? And so the question is, I know it's a weird question and it's hard, it's how do dead people live, which seems like a contradiction, but you guys are with, are with me so far, so you understand what this means. But we see this in the other verses. Because we, we actually get three things for how dead people live in verses 2 and 3. It says, which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, which is one, according to the ruler of the power of the air, or you may have prince of the air. That's two. And then we all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. That's the third one. So we're just going to walk through these real quick, and what does that actually look like? So the first one is that we walked according to the ways of the world. It's a lifestyle where we just follow the ways of the world. And so there's, there's a, a thing in here kind of about peer pressure, right? We just follow what everybody else is doing. And you may say, well, I'm not really influenced by peer pressure anymore. I'm an adult, Right? That's what kids do. That's what happens in high school. But as an adult, I'm not influenced by peer pressure anymore. That's not how this works. Well, then I would ask, why do we all have the same phones? Or clothes? Or the way we decorate our homes? Or haircuts? Or the way we talk? Why do all those things sound the same and look the same when you're around a group of people? Well, it's because of peer pressure. Right? You become like them, whether they're exerting that actively on you or just because you're around them. Right? You just didn't randomly decide to do what everyone else is doing on your own. Right? You did that because other people were doing it, whether you knew in that intentionally or not. And so whether we like it or not, the world influences us because we are in it. Right? It's kind of like the fish. The fish doesn't know it's in water until you take it out of water. And then he's like, oh, this is a very different experience of my life. I need to go back where I was. It's kind of like us in the world. We don't realize we're in the world because we're in it. We're all around it. And we're used to it and we grew up in it. And so we can't see it as easily as we maybe could if we were outside of it. 
or if you visited another country, you immediately recognize the things that are different from your culture, from the world that you live in. And then when you come back, you say, oh, things are a little different than I experienced before. Right? We miss sometimes how much the world influences us because we're in it, and it's all around us. And when we walk according to the ways of this world, God is essentially absent from all areas of life. We seek to do things on our own or as the world does them with no thought of how God would want us to do them. So next we see they live according to the ruler of the power of the air. Um, you may have prince of the power of the air. Um, this figure is identified by most scholars as Satan. So he is the one behind the ways of the world. He is the one pushing things forward. He is distracting us. He is dividing us so that people will follow his ways or at the very least not follow God's ways. And so we are, I would say, to some level, influenced by Satan because he is able to influence the world. He influences the culture. He influences non-believers. And I think believers to some degree, though that's limited in my opinion, and I'm not going to spend much time there, just know that this ruler, his rule, his whatever you want to call it, is temporary. It is not going to last forever. One day God will come and he will say, okay, time's up, and that will be the end, and he will be destroyed, and it will be over. But the third way we see them living is to carry out the inclinations of our fleshly desires and thoughts. It isn't just outside forces that influence us. It isn't just the world and the culture and the things around us and Satan as this outside force. No, it's actually our fleshly desires and thoughts. It comes from within. Our own thoughts and desires lead us astray. Right? And I want to note just at the beginning, our natural bodily desires essentially are neutral. There's nothing wrong with them in themselves. Right? There's nothing wrong with a desire for food, sleep, or even a desire for sex. But when those desires are twisted into gluttony or laziness or lust, they become a problem. But that's how sin works. It twists normal, neutral things until they become bigger. And they become more important than they should be. They become, as some of you may have in your translation cravings, right? More than desires, it becomes something you must have to be satisfied. Now, this isn't like me when like at some 1030, like every night, I'm like, I just need some chocolate before I go to bed today, right? I'm assuming I'm not the only one that does this, right? It, this is different than that, right? These are cravings for extreme or for dangerous things, or regular things that become dangerous because we've made them ultimate. So we may say things like, I can only be happy if I get this. I can only be satisfied if I get this thing or if I obtain this thing. Whether that's a physical thing or an emotional or intellectual thing, like being loved by someone a certain way or being seen as intelligent or successful. 
And just in case, you might be saying, I don't really do that. I don't have these kind of cravings that just kind of lead me and desires that lead me astray. I'm not carried along by my fleshly desires. Have you ever lied to somebody without thinking about it? Just out of instinct? Just it came out before you even thought about it? Ever said something you wouldn't normally say to somebody without thinking about it and it just came out and you're like, oh, that was not supposed to come out of my mouth, right? That's your fleshly desire within you, right? That's underneath who, that's what this is saying, underneath, that's who you really are. Those things come out. And so I think all of us have experienced those things and know at some level there is something within me that wants to do things and say things that I don't necessarily want to do or know I should be doing. And if we put all of those together, it can be summed up in the next phrase that we see, sons of disobedience. Right, The sons or daughters, women, you are not left out just because it says sons, you're not off the hook. Right? It's sons and, or daughters of disobedience are people whose lives are characterized by disobedience and rebellion against God. They live in active rebellion and opposition against God, which is where all of us were before Christ. Before we experience God's grace through faith, we are all in this category. We are all sons and daughters of disobedience. We are all rebelling against God. It's who we are by nature. Automatically. That's who we are. And so our next question is, well, what happens to those who are dead? If we were all in this state and if we were to remain there, what would happen to us? And we see this towards the end. It says, We were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. And you may have a different ending. Um, basically, as others were also means essentially just like everyone else. We were children under wrath just like everybody else. So just in case you thought you weren't included in any of the other ones that I explained before, this says everybody's here, just like everybody else. And as I talked about earlier, this is where we end up by nature. You don't need to do anything out of the ordinary to end up in this category. And sometimes we think, when we think about God's wrath, well, God's wrath is for bad people. And I'm not a bad person, so it can't be for me. But this is for all who are opposed to God. Because of sin, this is where we all naturally end up. We are all sons and daughters of disobedience. We are all children of wrath on our own. We are his children who are rebelling against him and his ways. Right, it's like, have you ever like, noticed or saw something in your parents, and you said, I will never be like that. I will never say that. I will never do that. I'll never treat my kids that way. I'll never do this with my grandkids or whatever, right? Because we don't want to be like our parents. We want to be better, or we want to be different. Some of this applies to God is we don't want to be, 
us. Maybe at some level we do, but we don't want to be like him. We want to be different. We want to be our own person. And I also know God's wrath is sometimes hard for us to understand. Right? How can God be like that? Or how can God do that? How can he judge or destroy or condemn like that? But I think sometimes it's because we equate his wrath with our sense of anger and judgment. Right? Like parents, when your kids do that one thing that you've been asking them not to do for the thousandth time and you just lose it, and you think that must be right, anger, fury, that must be what God's wrath looks like. Or when someone offends you or talks bad about you and you just erupt in anger, I think that's what we sometimes think about when we think of wrath. Or if you watch a lot of superhero movies, right, we think of a villain who at the beginning has been wronged in some way and he's seeking to get revenge or payback for whoever did that to him. So they can show their wrath to those who have wronged them. But God's wrath isn't like ours. It's not ruled by emotions. It's not like a bad temper so that he could fly off the handle for any moment, at any moment, for any reason. It's not spite. It's not revenge. It isn't arbitrary. It's his divine reaction to one thing, evil. It's his divine reaction to evil. And because of that, it's predictable. We can trace God's wrath from Genesis 2 to the end of Revelation. And it's the same all the way through Scripture. His wrath is the same, pointed towards the same things. It's always against evil and those who rebel against him, every single time. It's his personal, righteous, constant reaction to evil. His refusal to compromise, but his resolve to condemn evil in every sense. Now, sometimes that comes faster than others. And sometimes it looks different than others. But in the end, God's wrath will conquer evil. And those who are evil, the rebels, will experience his judgment. But his wrath is not separated from or in opposition to his love. It's not. It's, it's connected. He can love perfectly and display wrath and judgment perfectly at the same time. And that's where it gets really hard for us to understand. But we'll see this kind of balanced together when we get to chapter, uh, verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, which actually is going to be a while. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Paul, in this section, verses 1 through 10, he balances God's wrath and his love together. So if you want to see that, you can read that again this afternoon, verses 1 through 10. But God's wrath is His reaction to evil that is unchanging, predictable, and uncompromising. 
and it will be experienced by all those who are in rebellion against him. And so our last question, understanding all of those things, is there any hope for those who are dead? If we're all dead, if we're all sinners, if we're all trespasses, if we're all going to experience God's wrath unless something happens, is there any hope? And the real hope actually begins in verse 4, which we'll get to later. But there are actually hints of hope in these verses, in verses 1 through 3. Notice at the beginning it says, and you were dead. Right? You were dead. That's past tense. Now, normally we don't talk about being dead in past tense. Right? It's either present, you are dead, or future, you will be dead. But here Paul is saying you were. Past tense already happened. You were dead, but obviously something has happened and you are no longer dead because it's past. You've no longer. Then we have a couple of phrases. The sin, you were dead in your sins in which you previously lived. Right? You lived in them previously, before, but it seems like something has changed. And then he talks about when you previously walked, you previously lived in them, and you used to do that, but you've moved on. But we're going to sneak in the first two words of verse 4, because that's where the hope actually begins. And these two words are actually the center of these ten verses. It's, it's these two words, but God... You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were children under wrath, but God. But God. We were dead. We were rebels. We were under his wrath, but God stepped in. This is actually, as I thought about it this week, it's actually isn't a bad setup for what the season we are entering. Because this is exactly where people were. Right? There was a world full of people who were dead in their trespasses and sins. And God says, okay, it's time to step in. And the way he steps in is, as usual, is in the most unexpected way. And so he sins a baby to be born, right? He doesn't come full grown with the army behind him, right? Already riding the horses, cavalry coming. That's not how he shows up, but God still intervenes. And so we're going to do actually our Advent series next for three weeks, and then we're going to come back to the second half of Ephesians chapter four, and that'll be actually the first Sunday in January. But I think what we're going to see in the middle in our Advent series is actually what's happening, is God stepping in, giving us hope, hope for dead people, right? Because that's when Jesus enters the world. How God responds to our situation of being dead and in our sins is he steps in and sends Jesus. First as a baby, and then he grows up, 
after having lived a perfect life without sin, still alive, not dead in his trespasses and sins because he didn't have any. He dies on the cross for us, for the dead, for the trespassers, for the sinners, for those who follow our own fleshly desires. He died for us so that when he comes back to life and conquers death and sin, we also can become alive. And we're going to see that very clearly as we actually go through the Advent season and see Jesus come into the world and how God prepares for that and sends him to save us. Right? God's rescue plan for us starts in a very unexpected way. But there is hope for dead people. And I know most of you in this room can say, I once was dead, but now I'm alive. But if you're here this morning and you have any doubt that you might still be dead and you don't want to be dead anymore, you want to be alive, you want to experience the love and the hope that comes with trusting in Jesus and his sacrifice for you, please come talk to me after the service this morning. I'll be right here at the front. I would love to have that conversation. Or I feel comfortable saying this, talk to the person next to you in your pew. I'm confident that whoever you're sitting by here this morning can help you with that conversation, right? To help you understand what it means to follow Jesus and how he gives us hope and overcomes our sins and our trespasses and our desires and our wants and all the things that we do that we don't want to do and all the things that we don't do that we're supposed to do. He triumphs all of those because he is our hope. Will you pray with me this morning? God, we come before you and we, I think just, I'm, uh, this week I was just challenged by this word of understanding the depth of my sin, of who I really am. If left to my own devices without you, I would be just as wicked, just as evil, just as sinful as anybody else. And I would be a weird thing, to, worthy of your judgment, worthy of your wrath because of how I lived. God, but you don't leave us there. You step in and you send Jesus, your son, to die for us and take the penalty for our sins so that we can have life. So that we can overcome those things, the, the power and the penalty of sin to be with you, to be changed, to be given the Holy Spirit that gives us power to overcome those things, those thoughts, those desires that come naturally to us that you help us to battle them, to fight against them, to overcome them. So God, I pray that as we, we look and reflect, even this season, that it would help us to remember who we were and where we were, that we were dead. We didn't just need medicine. We didn't just need a little help. We weren't just sick. We were dead. We needed resurrection. And you gave it to us through Jesus, our living hope, the one who conquered sin and death so that we can have life. And because Jesus is alive, 
because he is good and perfect, we can also be good and perfect through him. We will no longer be children of wrath, but brought into the family of God to be loved and to be adopted and to be heirs who experience your love and your grace and your mercy and your inheritance of eternal life. So God, help us to see and to be thankful for the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us, that we were dead, but we are now alive in Christ. It's in your name I pray. Amen.